Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we look to talk in depth about the biggest issues affecting the world's most fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. And I'm Vincent Nee. With the world still reeling from the effects of coronavirus, this week we turn our attention to Myanmar, also known as Burma. It is one of the last countries in Asia to admit they have cases of COVID infection, and there's fear that the actual scale of this health crisis could be larger than the officials have reported. Aside from the coronavirus, the controversy over the plight of Rohingya Muslims still lingers, casting a huge shadow over Myanmar's relationship with the Western world. In the meantime, China has increased its charm offensive in the country of late too. So what does this crisis mean to Myanmar? And where are we more broadly now in the story of the country that's experienced so much dramatic change in recent years? Joining us today from Yangon is Dan Ming-Wu. He's one of the best-known historians and analysts on Southeast Asia, and in particular on Myanmar. He also advised Myanmar's government in the early years of transition. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Well, let's start from this conversation on COVID infection in Myanmar. What is going on in your part of the world? Well, what we know for sure is that we have something over 20 confirmed cases. So that's the number of people who've tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. And all of these positive tests have come over the past couple of weeks. We have several hundred, maybe over a thousand now who've been tested overall. And that's obviously a very small number given the population of the country, which is about 55 million. Back in January and February, there was some speculation that many more people might have contracted the virus or been infected by the virus, given that Myanmar has a long, almost 1,500 mile long border with China. But there was very little testing done at that time. And so no one really knows exactly what kind of spread there might have been back then. But we know now that we have at least 20 confirmed cases, again, out of about 1,000 or so tested overall. Right. Now, Myanmar has dealt with major catastrophes in the past, often from floods, for example. How well prepared are the authorities there to tackle something like coronavirus? Well, in some ways, extremely ill-prepared, because in, in Myanmar, over the past many decades, really since the 1960s, and even going back to some extent before that, Myanmar's healthcare system was extremely underfunded. And so we have you know, one of the weakest healthcare, public healthcare systems anywhere in the world. In the 2000s, the WHO, the World Health Organization, said that Myanmar's healthcare system at the time was the absolute worst in the world. I think it was 190 out of 190 countries. It's made improvements since then. There's been more funding, but it's still it's extremely weak. And in parts of the country, there's no public healthcare system at all. I think in terms of the government's ability to respond in other ways, say through quarantines, lockdowns, in some ways it still has the infrastructure of the old military state. So to some extent, it, it, it should be able to, to direct people if it wanted to, to act in a certain way. Whether that's a good thing or not is a is a different issue. But I would say overall, you know, compared to even compared to some you know other poor countries, it's not well positioned. It's okay if the number of cases remains twenty or thirty or fifty or even several hundred or a thousand. But if it's much more than that, it'll be very difficult. Obviously, across the world, we've seen governments and states imposing extraordinary restrictions on their people's lives and businesses and the economy and so on. In a country like Myanmar, which is so diverse and geographically large and lots of different ethnicities and so on, how easy is it for the government to kind of get those kinds of messages across, say, if drastic action is needed to combat the virus? If drastic action was needed, so for instance, a lockdown like in China, it would be extremely difficult. I mean, if, yeah. if we 
the periphery, you have places which are just not under government control. I mean, maybe 20% of the country is is in some ways affected by violent conflict, armed conflict, or under the control of, of one of several dozen non-state armed organizations or insurgent armies. And then you have other parts of the country where, you know, in the rural areas, in, in remote areas, where the state is just extremely fragile and, and, and mm. practically there doesn't extract taxes, it doesn't provide services, so it would be difficult. In the cities, it would be much easier. And we have a history of curfews and other kinds of authoritarian um, measures right. imposed. So in that way, it might be easy. Whether they should do anything like that is a, is a different question. I think the government has been fairly mindful, I think, over these past couple of months uh, as the crisis has unfolded to try to find that balance between trying to get people to socially distance, to to respect certain suggestions that they have been making, but not move towards the kind of extreme lockdown measures that could have really bad economic consequences for, for ordinary people. At the same time, though, we've seen that in other countries that the sooner that governments act, uh, so far at least, it seems to be the case that the sooner they act, the more drastically they act, the sooner you can sort of combat this virus without too many fatalities. So is that debate is really active now in, in Myanmar, is it? It's, yeah, it's active. I, you know, how active is, I guess, would be a question. And it gets, gets back a little bit to the truth of the situation. I mean, if, if we're still right at the very beginning of things where we have, you know, 20 cases, then perhaps Myanmar still has some time before it, it moves towards, you know, extreme measures or di- yeah, economically difficult measures. If the truth is that this virus has been spreading a lot over the past couple of months, it's just been undetected, unreported, untested, then we might be quite far along and where, you know, so of much more extreme measures might be warranted. The only other thing I would add is that, you know, this is a country where 80% plus are in the informal sector, where many people are farmers, where, you know, you can't really sort of lock them down, at least once the planting season begins in a few weeks time, and where, you know, the consequences, as we've seen in parts of India, of a real lockdown could be disastrous very quickly for, for millions of people. Can you speak to us a little bit about the political economy in Myanmar today and how the infrastructure, how the economy and how the society functions affects the way people deal with issues like coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the country is like the Wild West. I mean, basically what we've had is, you know, we had a colonial economy back through the middle of the last century. And then we had military rule and this experiment in Burmese socialism that didn't go well. And then we've had over the past 30 years, since 1988-89, this kind of evolution of a very laissez-faire capitalism in many ways. I mean, the state still controls some sectors uh, and land and things. But in general, it's a market-driven economy where there's almost no provision of social services to the majority of people. I mean, there's schools, but they're poorly funded. There's almost no healthcare system for for the vast majority of people. 30% of people are undocumented in in any way. There's a huge informal economy and an enormous migration of millions of people to the cities or to Thailand looking for work. People work in, in the mining sector with really no protection and in that environment, when you have this kind of crisis, again, it's very difficult, even with the best political will for the state to act effectively. The Hidden History of Burma is the title of your book, and I'd like to turn to that now, if that's okay. It's a fantastic read. You mentioned there the legacy of the colonial era, which came to an end after the Second World War. Can you first explain what that colonial legacy was? Obviously, Myanmar was under British rule for several decades going into the 20th century. So your book really talks about that to start with. Can you talk us through what you feel that colonial legacy was and why it casts such a long shadow over the country still today? I mean, I guess it's a, it's a few things, maybe maybe three things in particular. I mean, one was that it was a very radical colonial rule in the sense that it wasn't that the British Empire came and, and basically ruled through 
local elites or a local king or prince or maharaja or something like that. They really uprooted the old traditional system of government that had evolved over many centuries and replaced it with an entirely imported British Indian bureaucratic system. And because British rule in most of the country was only lasted five or six decades between 1885 and the Second World War, when the British left, they left behind extremely weak institutions. And the war itself also obviously destroyed many of those yeah. institutions temporarily. So weak institutions is one. The second is that this was a colonial regime which relied to a large extent on imported Indian labor. So there was an enormous migration of people from the rest of British India, Burma was part of India at the time, of Indian people. And that led to a certain type of ethnic nationalist sentiment. And then the third is because of the colonial political economy, which was very exploitative, as many colonial political economies were, it led to a, a left-wing reaction. So it led to a long period of Burmese politics that was entirely dominated by left-wing thinking. So the immigration from India, that's what caused the nationalist feeling amongst the population that lived within Burma at the time already. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I suppose you know, even without that, there would have been sort of national and there was nationalist resistance to just colonial rule in general. Mm. But it took on a, a specific kind of complexion because of this enormous migration of Indians to the point where, you know, Burma became about 15 percent Indian immigrants and cities like Rangoon became about 60 percent Indian. And so it was an enormous part of the of the landscape at that time. And then after Burma gained independence after the war, sort of 1947, I think is the year, as you said, you had about a decade of democratic government. But what really went wrong during that period, to your mind? I mean, to some extent, it was a reasonable democratic government. But you kind of zoom out a little bit and you know the bigger picture really was that it was a country at, at war. It, the Second World War began in 1941 and it never really ended in the sense that you know it lapsed immediately after the Second World War into brigandage and banditry and then all-out civil war between the government at the time and the communists. And then later many different ethnic minority rebellions as well came in, into the mix. And so this was a war-ravaged country which was then in the throes of civil war and it never really was able to kind of come to grips with the fact that, you know, it was a country where you had this Burmese Buddhist majority, but you also had all of these people who had been ruled separately by the British, minority peoples up in the hills, that we needed to find this inclusive identity. And that challenge, which came, started in 1948, really remains kind of unresolved. Right. That's a, identity is a really interesting issue. We'll talk about that later. But then after that, we entered a long period of military rule during which Burma really became an international pariah. What happened to the country during that period, economically as well as socially? I mean, it wasn't an international pariah in the sense that it was shunned by other countries. I mean, on the mm. country, countries like the United States, China, Russia, Soviet Union, they all tried to court Burma and, right. and try to get the country into its Cold War camp. It was Burma that decided to isolate itself. And to right. some extent, it was, it was an army regime. Right. Uh, it was right. the army that took over. But in the beginning, at least, it was a socialist regime as well. And it was you know, left-wing socialist thinkers that basically charted this, this agenda of, of nationalization, as well as the expulsion of many of the Indians that had come into the country as well. And that isolation took place, because that self-imposed isolation took place because back in the 60s when it happened, Burma was right next to the hottest conflict in the world in Laos, Vietnam, and then Cambodia. And it really saw the writing on the wall, and it really wanted to make sure that it didn't become part of this Indochina conflict. And it decided then to kind of withdraw from the rest of the world at that point, mainly because of that reason. And economically during that period, how was Burma operating? What, what sort of place was it? What sort of economy yeah, did it, it have? 
you had the kind of normal bits of a socialist economy in the sense that it nationalized a lot of industry. It tried to provide better services and in some way didn't do that very well because it was also fighting a civil war on the side. But the main thing about its experiment in, in socialism was that it was also an autarkic kind of system in the sense that it sought not to kind of increase exports for growth but instead to kind of substitute for imports and, and to try to create its own industries. And that failed miserably. And so at the same time that many Asian economies like South Korea, which wasn't much richer right. at the time, Taiwan, Singapore, you know, Hong Kong, were being driven by, by exports, Burma went in the opposite direction. And, and for a number of different reasons, that became disastrous by really by the 70s. Because it is right. a country that does have substantial natural resources, right? I mean, the oil that Burma has has long been coveted, for example. Yes. I mean, it could have it could have exported back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, right through the period where we had high commodity prices in the beginning of this century, we could have exported many of these things, you know, whether it was minerals or, or oil and gas or, or agricultural exports as well. But it could also have had, you know, at a time when it had a base of educated people and skilled people and engineers and others like Korea, like Taiwan, it could have also tried to have an export-oriented manufacturing sector, but it chose not to. And so it was a mix of all these things, it turning it on itself for political reasons, but partly also to kind of try this economic model out, that became a disaster. And, and it was clear it was a disaster by the 70s, but it was so long along that path that the dictator at the time, General Ne Win, didn't know how to kind of reverse course. Right. And by the time he tried to do that in the 80s, opening up a bit, opening up to World Bank and, and other kind of international assistance, the regime became very fragile and then collapsed with this uprising in 1988. Fast forward to the last decade, um, we have seen military rulers seemingly ceded power. Uh, what caused them to have that kind of thinking to share power with NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi, and then you know, this is what we see more recently on the media headlines? Well, I mean, they've always had this idea. So, you know, when, when the socialist regime collapsed in 88, it was replaced by this military junta. And that junta, as early as 1993, basically suggested the kind of setup that we have now, sort of quasi-democracy. And it wasn't that the military didn't want that. It was that the National League for Democracy, but also the West, like the, the United States government, rejected that as, as being not good enough, right? It wasn't really a full democracy that was being mm. offered. So it wasn't so much the Burmese right. military shifted, it was actually everybody else shifted to some extent in accepting what had been on the table for a long time. Now, what was on the table was this kind of mixed system. But I think because by 2011, when these changes took place, two other things were kind of in the mix. The first was that the ex-generals who were then leading that new system also did a number of extra things like releasing political prisoners, allowing freedom of speech and media for the first time in decades, releasing Aung San Suu Kyi herself. All of these things made the whole thing look much better. Also, that Aung San Suu Kyi herself felt that she needed to give this a, a go now and kind of come into this system, even though she had kind of rejected the idea of that before. That made a huge difference in Western eyes. And then third, it was at a time when the West, uh, the United States in particular, was beginning its Asia tilt, right? And it, it was it was looking to see how to outmaneuver China in places like Myanmar. And right. so it was, the timing was right in terms of trying to, to repair relations with Washington. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic sort of potted history of the last few decades in Myanmar. You go into this in a, a lot more detail in your book, and I urge everyone who's listening to this to get hold of the book. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to read about the political developments. Before we move fully on to the present day, can we talk about the background that you also go into in the book to the terrible situation with the Rohingya today? First of all, it seems it's 
the, the term itself, Rohingya, is relatively recent, or at least the usage of it is relatively recent. Can you explain the somewhat complex history of that northwest region of Myanmar? I mean, that northwest region of Myanmar has been the northwest region of Myanmar only since independence. I mean, before that, you had an independent kingdom there, Arakan. Arakan, where yeah. Whose kings spoke um, a language very similar to Burmese and, and who were Buddhist. And in the region, which is now kind of southeastern Bangladesh from Chittagong uh, southwards, and what is now also northern Arakan or Rakhine State, as it's called, was this kind of probably very sparsely populated area for for a lot of history where many people spoke a dialect uh, or language very similar to to Bengali or to, to Indian languages further to the west where there was also influence from the east from from Burma as well as from these Arakanese kings and where people probably went back and forth and nobody really thought in terms of exact borders right this area became the border between the Mughal Empire and this kingdom of Arakan but again no set borders in a modern sense the Burmese conquered it briefly then the British conquered it and it was part of British India and British Burma for 120 years. And then at independence, things sort of fell apart, like in so many other parts of the of the country. If we kind of fast forward, what we saw by the late 70s and again in the early 90s was that you had this population of practicing Muslims who spoke a language that was very similar to Bengali. And they were increasingly seen by the Burmese state as not really belonging to the country. So in some way, illegal immigrants or immigrants or people who had come in British times, and they were gradually excluded from any kind of sense that they were part of the new identity or the new kind of country that was being built, the new mm. kind of nation being built. And so it happened over a gradual period. I think the narrative that's accepted by so many people in this country, in, in Myanmar, is that the bulk of the people there are illegal immigrants, meaning they came since independence. Whereas, in fact, I think most of the people are people whose ancestors probably immigrated during the British period. And of course, there are people whose ancestors would go further back into pre-British times as well. So it's very vague. But the truth is that most people, uh, Muslims who are from that area, who call themselves Rohingya now, whatever their ancestors might have called themselves before, were born in the country. And they're all Almost certainly, the majority of, of them, at least, are descendants of people who came, at least in British times, which means that they would actually qualify for citizenship under existing laws. Now, obviously, the plight of Rohingya Muslims is uh, widely reported these days. But I wanted to them, who is driving the actions against Rohingyas? I think you have to see this in, in a couple of different lights or contexts. I mean, one is that this is in a context where a country has been fighting a brutal civil war for 70, 80 years. Right. And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, more than that, 15, 20 years ago, the army was uh, launching counter insurgency offenses on the eastern border near Thailand. It was accused of genocide then. Uh, hundreds of thousands of then Karen, mainly Karen Christians, yeah. uh, to Thailand or into IDP camps. You know, this is a context where lots of terrible things have happened to civilians for a very long time. I mean, that's one. The second is that you're, this is the poorest part of a very poor country and the most isolated part of a country that's been very isolated for a long time, where all the people there, whether they're Buddhist or Muslim or, or speaking Arakanese, Burmese or, or Rohingya or Bengali, pretty much have no hope for the future in terms of any kind of decent you know, life for themselves and for their kids. And so the Tinder was there for any kind of ignition. And in 2012, you had this sudden explosion of communal violence. And whether or not that was instigated by someone from within the state or within political parties, no one knows for sure, it could have been. But it's also a place that has a long history of intercommunal violence as well. So we had that. And then we had for a couple of years, or several years actually, from 2012 to 2016, you had a government 
in this more democratic kind of environment that wasn't willing to take on aggressively the sort of nationalist feeling that was building up there against the Muslim communities. So the Muslim communities, many of which had become displaced, they were living in IDP camps, an even right. worse situation. But any kind of idea of forced integration or anything would have run up against a lot of local Arakanese nationalist sentiment. And so in an election you know, environment, we had elections in 2015, no one was willing to, to do that. So the situation of the Rohingya Muslims became even worse. And then in 2016, a Rohingya Muslim insurgent group suddenly appeared. And that led to the counterinsurgency operations that then led to the destruction of hundreds of villages and then the exodus of 700,000 people across the border to Bangladesh. The only thing I would add, because it's so important in understanding this, is that you know people think of the Burmese state and the army and all that on the one side, and then they think of the, of the Rohingya Muslims on the other side. But kind of in between, or as a third part of this triangle, are the Arakanese Buddhists, right? The Rakhine Buddhists, the local Buddhist community, who see themselves as as oppressed by the Burmese state and the Burmese majority as anyone else, mm. who's, who, who feel that they have tremendous grievances, who now have their own insurgency, which is gaining strength by the day, and which is involved now in intense fighting with the Burmese army over the past year, with over 100,000 Rakhine Buddhists displaced, civilians displaced since January of last year. So it's interesting, so you have to see this within the broader context of central government in, in Yangon, kind of fighting battles on several fronts in Myanmar, obviously in the eastern regions as well, that you've had years and years of, of unrest there and rebel groups operating in the east of the country. Again, your book goes into detail in some of the attempts at peace process in the eastern part of the country, which borders with China and so on. What's the situation there now? How peaceful or otherwise is that eastern part of Burma these days? It's actually relatively peaceful compared to where it has been even in, in recent times. So some of right. the groups, some of the armed organizations, we have over 20 big sort of biggish armed organizations. Some are very big, some are not so big. And then hundreds of also militia in these areas and other kinds of non-state armies. And some of them have signed ceasefires. Some of them have signed what we call the nationwide ceasefire agreement. Some of them have not. But in general, the fighting, the level of fighting has died down for a number of different reasons. But one reason is simply because a lot of the army is now in the west of the country dealing with this new Arakanese insurgency. It's the Arakan army, which is the name of the insurgent group. So partly because of that, um, and also just because China also doesn't want a lot of fighting on its border, partly because it wants to roll out its Belt Road Initiative infrastructure projects. It's been kind of pressuring all sides to, to calm down. So the fighting has actually died down. But let me just say one last thing on the on the Rohingya, which is that, you know, I think it's so important to understand this broader context. But that, of course, is not an excuse for human rights violations. And so, I mean, one thing is about what happened to civilians and accountability for those actions and protecting refugees and vulnerable people. But the second is, if we really want to find a way forward, of course, we have to understand the context and we have to have the analysis that yeah. will allow us to look at realistic options going forward. And, and I mean, actually, of course, that touches, in a sense, on one of the problems really for Myanmar is this kind of misunderstanding of the country from outside. And, and we've seen such a turnaround in perceptions of the country over the last 10 years, as you said, that initial kind of euphoria almost with the release of Aung San Suu Kyi. And now 10 years on, we see the extraordinary sight of her appearing at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, a quite remarkable turnaround for a country. But how was the most recent episode with Mrs. Suu Kyi at The Hague? How was that seen internally in Burma by most people? 
I guess, you know, the support base of the government is very much the kind of the middle classes of the country in, in the cities and in the small towns where, especially amongst the Burmese speaking Buddhist majority, where she still enjoys a huge amount of support. And her appearance at The Hague was a big boost to that. She became even more popular than ever before, because I think for many people, the issue, the Rohingya issue actually isn't that important and it's peripheral and they haven't thought very much about it. But the ICJ case and the Western and what people see as the IOC, sort of Islamic world pressure on this issue, is seen or, or misperceived by people as this vast global conspiracy right. against them. And so the ICJ case was seen almost as a, a situation where the nation was under threat. And whatever you thought about the actual situation, it was time to rally around the flag and rally around the leader. And, and, and she was seen as the only person who could defend the country in any way in that international setting. So if anything, it boosted her already high approval ratings within the country. What is the role of Aung San Suu Kyi now? You know, obviously, we know she's very high profile in defending Myanmar in the international setting. What exactly is Aung San Suu Kyi doing in Burma's context? Well, she's the most powerful political leader in the country. She's the most powerful political figure, popular political figure in the country. So under this constitution, the army is separate. So the commander in chief of the army who was appointed by the old dictator is in charge of the army. He says that he takes orders from the president, who is someone that Aung San Suu Kyi appoints. But you know, in practice, the army is largely autonomous. If the army wants to run an operation in a certain way, it's very difficult to, for anyone to, to say otherwise. The army is in charge of its own internal promotion and everything else, but everything else to do with government, the budget of the government, uh, passing of laws in parliament, the management of the economy, foreign relations, health, education, all of these things are completely under the civilian side of the government, which is completely under Aung San Suu Kyi. And so, you know, day to day, she's living in Naypyidaw, she's attending chairing committee meetings, chairing cabinet meetings. I mean, she is the de facto head of the government. Being de facto head of the government, uh, she also has to deal with international affairs. How would you describe Burma's international relations? I guess the best way to understand is that the, the instinct of the Burmese state and, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is to have good relations with everyone and to balance everyone off the big powers, the US and China and, and ASEAN and Europe and Japan and India and everyone else. And in the 1990s and 2000s, it was always felt that it was not a good thing, that the country had lost its good relationship or the potential for a good relationship with the West. And so in many ways, people welcomed the early 2010s when relations with the West became better and better, reaching a high point when President Obama and people like that visited the country in 2012, 2013 and 14. And so now with this situation, with the dramatic cooling in relations with the Rohingya violence and exodus, there has been, I guess, some attempt to, to want to repair relations, but no one really knows how to do that. And I think there's a sense that whatever they do on this realistically do, it's not going to improve relations. Whether that's true or not is a different question, but that's, I think, is the feeling. China, of course, steps into the breach. China is much more, um, what's the word? It's really moved to a higher gear in terms of trying to get investments moving forward through BRI and in other ways, increasing flights to the country, tourism to the country until this COVID crisis and other things. And the Myanmar government's reaction to that is not to say no to China, even though they're wary to some extent of being overly dependent on China, it's to say kind of yes, but at the same time, trying really hard to promote relations with Korea, Japan, ASEAN countries as a balance to China at a time when they know that the West cannot be. What about India then? The relations with India are extremely good. Um, there have been VIP 
visits both ways. India is very keen to have the best possible relationship with Myanmar. Myanmar is as well. Army to army relations are very good. But India so far hasn't had the kind of muscle that China has in terms of offering, you know, multi, multi billion dollar investments. And whereas the trade with China is again worth billions of dollars a year, so much of Myanmar's agricultural exports go to China. The markets in India for Burmese products are, are only a small fraction of that size. And so actually the only other country that can kind of begin to rival China in offering big investments for economic development projects and manufacturing and everything else is Japan. And Myanmar has been kind of with open arms, kind of welcoming right. uh, Japanese investment. That's absolutely fascinating. You talk towards the end of your book about how the economy, though, in Myanmar is a kind of overarching problem for the country, even beyond the sort of ethnic tensions that we see within the country. Can you enlarge on that a little bit? What, what is really the sort of key issues with the economy? What does the government really need to change? And But does the government even have the capacity to do that, the capacity and the experience to, to set Myanmar on the road to the reforms that it needs? I mean, the Myanmar economy over the past 30 years has been this kind of capitalist economy. And in many others, it's been driven by resource uh, exploitation. It's been extremely corrupt. Uh, it's led to tremendous inequality. It hasn't helped the bottom 30, 40, 50 percent that are still living in extreme poverty. There's no social protection for most people. Public health care systems, as we said in the beginning, are, are incredibly weak to non-existent. And in many ways, I mean, the identity kind of issues mask this bigger problem, I think, for the majority of people on a day-to-day -day basis, whatever ethnicity, race, religion, identity, background you are, if you're poor in Myanmar, you really have very, very few options. And those options probably are getting worse all the time um, over these many years. And so I think that needs to be addressed. But for that to be addressed, as you suggest, you need a different kind of public sector. Public sector institutions are extremely weak. And then that leads again to political leadership and the kind of willingness of the political leadership to focus on this issue of what would equitable, uh, fair, environmentally sensitive, climate change sensitive development look like and what institutions do we need? There's been so much focus on democratic change, which is not unimportant, but really almost no focus on the kind of institutions we need to yeah. have the kind of economic development we would want, we should want. And given the problems with the Rohingya and so on, is Myanmar kind of getting the help it needs now from other countries or is it in danger of becoming isolated well, I, I, again? I would say, I mean, right now, I mean, up until recently, we'll see where, where things go with the coronavirus. But, you know, the problems are within Myanmar to a large yeah. extent. And I think the rest of the world is, is willing to invest. It's willing to help maybe you know, advanced countries, rich countries could do more to help in the right way. A lot of Myanmar's exports have been increasing because of new markets in, in Europe, for instance, that, that's been important. But I guess the thing is, you know, I don't think that the level of outrage that Myanmar sometimes provokes in the West, in the UK in particular, in the US, before because of democracy, people really kind of becoming outraged that Aung San Suu Kyi was, was under house arrest and there yeah. wasn't democracy, and more recently on the Rohingya issue. I don't think that's been matched in any way with investment in trying to understand the country yeah. and understand the depths of its problems and, yeah. and trying to find real ways in which uh, the country can move out of the multiple kind of traps and holes that it's in. There was such an allure to that whole Aung San Suu Kyi story, but it seems to have distorted our, our understanding of the country. And as you say, led us to overlook the sort of deeper structural problems that the country has and that, you know, ultimately need patience from 
other countries and the outsiders if Myanmar is, is to get through this and become a functioning country, essentially? Yeah, and I don't think there was actually ever any appetite for or even desire to kind of no. really do that. I think, you know, this question of why was that story so attractive, right? I think the answer to that lies much more in terms of the West, in terms yeah. of what, what, what function did it play back in the 90s and 20s in terms of local, you know, sort of media and debate and imagining of the rest of the world. Just to finish off, you're somebody who's who's straddled big institutions in the West. You, you worked with the United Nations for some time, but obviously, of course, you're now back in, in Myanmar and working there. If you could wave a magic wand in a way, what would you most like to see change now, both within the country and in overseas perceptions of Myanmar? I think that if we can get through this coronavirus reasonably well, and that's an enormous if, given everything that we've talked about, I think it should be a wake-up call, both to leaders in Myanmar, but also to people outside who want to help on the absolutely vital need to develop a welfare state in this country and to develop public services, health and education and the kind of social security nets that have been missing for such a long time. I think that should be at the core of Myanmar's democracy project, together with an agenda to eliminate all forms of discrimination, racial or religious or otherwise. I think that should be at the core. And I think for the outside world, Western governments to help, I think it should help Myanmar in building that welfare state, because otherwise it won't be able to meet any of the challenges to come, whether on the health side or, or otherwise. And, and, you know, with the coronavirus, one just one very last thing. I mean, as we all know, if you have one country that can't handle it and that sinks into the abyss of an epidemic that it cannot control for years to come, that's not good for anyone. And so I think it's in everyone's interest to really focus on the need for this kind of institutional development in, in countries like Myanmar. Well, thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Please do stay safe. Good luck to Myanmar. I'm talking to you, obviously, from the UK, where we are right in the midst of this virus and trying to cope with it. Uh, so good luck to you back in, in Myanmar. Obviously, I wish all our listeners uh, stay safe and, and healthy through this period as well. That's been an absolutely fascinating survey of Myanmar. So much more we could talk about, but uh, thanks very much for your time. Once again, your book, The Hidden History of Burma, is a fascinating read. Of course, you've written other books, which are equally interesting as well. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at asiamatterspod at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at Asia Matters Pod. Thank you to Vincent as well for joining me today, obviously, and to Rebecca Bailey, our producer, and also, of course, to Alex Lestrange, who wrote the music for the podcast. We hope to produce some more podcasts in the near future to keep you entertained and informed through this period. But thank you all once again for listening and stay safe and healthy. 